a young man never forgets his first love. I can remember the attraction consumed most of my waking hours and the relationship was one of deep devotion. A seven-year-old never forgets his first love. <laughs> and that first love was baseball. I would watch the Tigers play in 1960 on a little grainy black and white 13-inch TV. And I was so into the game, I had a yearbook and had memorized most of the contents of it. I knew every player, I knew where their hometown was, I knew their position, I knew their numbers. And I just was all in, enchanted by this amazing game. But then on a Friday night, June 9th, 1961, my dad took me to a game in Detroit. And that was unbelievable. Stadium looked far bigger than it did on our little TV screen. And the sounds, the crack of the bat and the cheer of the crowd were just all around me. And the colors, colors were amazing, the luscious green grass and the beautifully manicured dirt infield that was surrounded by or in stark contrast to these perfect geometric white lines of chalk still is one of the most beautiful sights I've ever seen. And when I think about that night and all that had taken place, the lights of the stadium turning night into day. My dad said that I recognized every player when they were warming up and I was yelling their names just from their numbers, much to the amusement of everyone in the upper deck, section five, uh, left field. But did the stadium really get bigger? And were the sounds in reality actually different? No. Well, what changed? It was my relationship to the game. I was no longer watching from a distance. I was there. I was immersed in what was going on and went deeper into that early love of my life than I had ever gone before. I was transfixed and transformed by the experience. Now I think our relationship with Jesus Christ is a little bit like that. We know him and we love him and we have a book about him and we know a lot from that book about him. But sometimes the relationship is at a distance, maybe with a grainy filter in between. And when we are allowed to see in his beauty See his beauty, the king in whose law I delight. When, as it were, we are immersed in the presence of Christ and all the beauties and wonders of his character enthrall us. Why, we are transfixed and transformed. And I think that's what happens when we study the book of Hebrews and begin to understand what it's all about. Here's our logo for the book of Hebrews as we begin this series, and you'll notice some symbols uh, underneath. Uh, this first symbol is the cross, the second symbol is greater than, and the 
third symbol is infinity. Christ is greater than everything. In fact, the whole book of Hebrews emphasizes the superiority of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross against everything else, especially, in particular, the old covenant of animal sacrifices, that Christ is superior, and we need to embrace that. Now, the book of Hebrews is somewhat difficult in that no one really knows who the author is. It's for a long time been stated that the Apostle Paul was the author. I think Dr. Sugden used to say uh, the book of Hebrews, um, and, uh, and he would say something like the, uh, the anonymous book of Hebrews written by the Apostle Paul, something like that. Uh, he was convinced it was Paul, but I don't think that's the best answer. But we don't know who the answer is. In origin, in 225 AD, perhaps is quoted by every commentator when he says, who wrote the book of Hebrews? Only God knows. But in this case, actually knowing the exact author is not so important, but it's much better to understand the reason for the writing. And William Lane, the great New Testament scholar, I think puts the facts together as well as anyone can. There's a little guessing here, but when you read through the book of Hebrews, there's a lot of hints. For instance, there is in every chapter a quotation from the Old Testament. But that quotation is from the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, which was translated in 70 BC in Alexandria, Egypt. And that's significant instead of being in a Hebrew or Aramaic, uh, Aramaic context. And there is a reference in the end of the book, chapter 13, verse 24, to those from Italy, or it says, those from Italy send you their greetings. Now, you might think that the author is in Italy writing to others, but the best understanding is that the author, wherever they may be, probably in Judea, is with a group of believers who come from Italy, who have that Hellenistic background. Thus, Greek would be a chosen and popular language for them. And the writer is writing to Christians in Rome so that the Italian Christians with me are sending you their greetings. And if that is true, it makes a lot of sense because the persecution that Romans began to endure fits perfectly with what is described in the book of Hebrews. It was 49 AD when the emperor Claudius expelled all of the Jews from Rome, and we read about that in other portions of the scripture. And he did this because there were riots in the Jewish quarters that were instigated by a person named Christus. And almost all scholars say that's a reference to Jesus. So what you have is these Jewish believers coming to faith in Christ, and we know that there was a church in Rome, Paul writes to it, and these individuals caused riots between the other Jews and the Roman emperor just expelled them, at least expelled them out of the synagogue, but many of the Jews from the land as well. And it was during this time that they began to experience persecution. 
But jump ahead maybe about 15 years or so, and in 64 AD, there was a fire in Rome set by Nero. You remember the stories about him fiddling while Rome burns. But he blamed the Christians. The Christians were the scapegoats. And another wave of persecution came. But it seems as though this letter finds itself in between the two. And then, of course, in 70 AD, the temple and the city of Jerusalem were destroyed. And nothing is mentioned in this letter about that. So we get some idea that here are believing Jewish people believing in the Savior who have undergone difficult times of persecution and more is on the verge of coming their way. Some of them have not yet resisted unto blood, the writer of Hebrews says, but that soon could be coming. And there is so much in this book about the old sacrificial system that it very clearly seems to be addressed to these Jewish believers. In chapter 10, we read these words. Remember the earlier days when you received the light? You endured great conflict, full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you had more lasting possessions. Boil it all down, here's a group of people living in a very difficult time. Their world is falling apart and they need help. <laughs> and in that, you and I can commiserate. We're living in a world that seems to be falling apart in so many ways. And the tendency of these Jewish believers was to go back, to disconnect from Christ, to begin to drift away, and then finally to reject him. The writer of Hebrews had to say, some of you already are not gathering together. You're withdrawing, not only from society, but from the church, and you're leaving Christ. And so this book is a book of warning, several warning passages. It's a book of ex exhortation because it says at the end of the book, please patiently take in my word of exhortation. And there are several warning passages throughout which we will see as we go through. But primarily it's a book about Jesus. It's about seeing Jesus. Like he really is. And I believe with all of my heart if those Jewish Christians would have had a glimpse of who Christ really was there would be no desire to go back. And if I believe, I believe if you and I get a real vision of the risen reigning Christ it will give us what we need to endure and keep going on. So throughout the book you have this idea of seeing Christ. Here's Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. It talks about the fact that we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. Which is so interesting because in chapter 1, as we'll see next week, Lord willing, Christ is seated above the angels. He's superior to them. But now he's made a little lower than the angels. Why? 
because he became a man. And he suffered death. And in dying, he's crowned with glory and honor. And in dying, he tastes death for every person. But we see Jesus. And that's why on Good Friday, our greatest goal is to see Jesus dying in our place. We can't see him literally, but we need to see him with the eyes of faith. And then there's another verse. This is chapter 3, verse 1. I like the translation of the message. Take a good hard look at Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. The NIV says, fix your thoughts on Jesus. The ESV says, consider Jesus. The New Living Translation says, think carefully about Jesus. Those are all good. And when we study the book of Hebrews, we want to see him lower than the angels but we also want to see him elevated above the angels as the high priest and apostle of our confession. We want to consider him and know him and see him in his beauty. Chapter 11, verse 27, by faith, Moses left Egypt. Not fearing the wrath of the king, the king's anger. And he did this, he persevered because he saw him who was invisible. <laughs> How do you see someone who is invisible? You see them with the eyes of faith. By faith, he saw him who was invisible. And then, of course, that famous portion of scripture in chapter 12 Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, lest you be weary and faint in your mind. So the writer says, here's the answer to possible apostasy. Here is the solution to this drifting away from Christ. It is to see Christ in all of his glory and all of his beauty. Of course, the Gospels center on the life of Christ, but the book of Colossians and the book of Hebrews deal with the theology of that person of Christ. Christological in their focus. And this is one of the best portions of Scripture that we could ever find to see Jesus. So let's try to do that, God willing. We'll only get into it in a few verses, and that's okay because there's a wonderful prologue in chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. And it tells us what we know about God. Hebrews 1.1, In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Now, right away, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, we learn that our God is a communicating God. And that is astounding. We would never know him unless he revealed himself to us. And God was under no pressure to do so. But because he created us out of love and longed to have fellowship with him, he determined to communicate with us. 
and give us his word. The eloquence of God is found on every page of what we call our Bible, the Holy Scriptures, all 66 books. Now, at first he spoke through the prophets, and that was in time past. That was in the past. This is a, a very simple way to refer to the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written primarily by the prophets. And they spoke, or God spoke to the prophets, and the prophets spoke to the people in various ways. Sometimes it was the audible voice of God. Someone, sometimes it was the thunder on Mount Sinai. Sometimes it was a dream or a whisper as to Elijah. But God spoke to his prophets, and they in various ways spoke to the people. Talk about first-person dramas. Read the book of Isaiah, and you'll see that God told him to preach to the people in many dramatic ways. So God is speaking, and he's spoken in the past, and that is amazing. But now compare that to what we read in verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through the sun. Now there's a comparison here, right? In the past, last days. Many prophets, one son. What was spoken in the past under the old covenant, the old testament, lacks some degree of finality, not sufficient. But what you have in the speaking of the son is the final, definitive. Word of God. And all of those apostles that spoke on the authority of the risen Christ wrote, and we have that word as well. Former days, past days, and last days. Last days is actually a theological term that refers to an era. So the past days under the old covenant, that was an era. And now we have a new era called the last days. It began with the coming of Christ and it ends with the coming of Christ. So you have the two advents, right? Christmas and then, of course, the second coming of Christ in power. And we live in this age between the advents. It's called the last days. You say, well, <laughs> the last days has been going on for 2,000 years. Yes, it has. Because time with God is far different than time with us. But these are crucial days and these are important days. And God has spoken to us by his son. So what we know about God is that he is a communicative God. He wants to make things clear. And the message he sends is one of salvation. The message he sends is one of a broken relationship with his creatures and his determination to rescue them back and save the world. So there is a more powerful message from the Son or a more completed message. The Old Testament is the word of God, but not complete without the message of the Son. 
And that's what the book of Hebrews is going to mention time and time again. So what we know about God, he loves us enough to communicate to us. And he sent his son. But now let's ask the question, what do we know about the son? Because really that's what he spends so much time in talking about. We're in the last days. It's interesting in the book of Hebrews. He's also going to talk about the former days, which refers to their early time, the believers, the Jewish believers, their early time in the faith. He's going to talk about today in chapter 3 and verse 4. And he's going to talk about the coming day in chapter 10. All of these time references to let us know that we, were, we are in a crucial time in history. And it's not time... To leave Christ, it's time to cleave and cling to Jesus Christ. But what do we know about the Son? Verse 2 says, in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. And then you have seven amazing descriptive statements. Each one could be a sermon. And this is where I really feel frustrated. But I, I, I'm going to give you a summary instead of digging down deep on each one, which we could. And if we did, the book of Hebrews would take maybe 10 years to get through. So here's the first one. He's spoken to us by a son whom he's appointed heir of all things. I mentioned that every chapter in the book of Hebrews quotes the Old Testament, and it quotes the Old Testament from the Greek translation. And one of the texts, as it were, for the author is Psalm 2, about the Son being appointed heir of all things. Verse 8, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. All possessions of the world belong to you. So God has given to the Son everything. We read about this in Corinthians. It's, it's seen throughout the New Testament. Everything belongs to Jesus. Not only that, it's through Jesus that he made the universe. So Jesus is the agent of creation. And when God spoke and worlds came into being, the speaking speaks of Christ. This sounds like John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word. The Greek word logos, communication, God talk. In the beginning was God speaking and the word was with God and the word was God and the word made all things, John says, and the word became flesh. So there you have it. John's gospel right in line with what the author of Hebrews is saying. Colossians chapter 1 gives us wonderful indication to this idea of Jesus being the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. That doesn't mean he was the first created. It means he is above all. He is preeminent over all. And not only is he... The invisible, he's the visible image of the invisible God, but all things were created by him. Things in heaven, things on earth, things under the earth, visible, invisible, whether they're principalities or powers, thrones or dominions, all things were created by him, and get this, for him. And in him, all things 
consist. Now this one, who is the agent of creation, is also the radiance of God's glory. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. Glory is a very interesting word in the scripture. It usually speaks of brightness and heat. And Jesus is not just a reflection of God. He is the radiant shining forth of God. And just as the sun has its rays that come down to earth, and we don't say that ray is a reflection of the sun. No, it is the sun beaming forth in its brightness. So Jesus is God beaming forth in his glory. Now, for most of his life, Jesus kept a veil over himself called humanity, right? But when you read in Matthew chapter 17 on the Mount of Transfiguration, for a moment that veil was pulled back and you could see Jesus shining in all his glory. And they could scarce take it in. Read the description, whiter than any uh, whitener, brighter than the sun. And they turned their heads away because Jesus was so glorious. And that's the way he will be when he comes back again. Read about it in Revelation chapter 1. Now this is a very interesting Greek word because it's not found anywhere else in the Bible. It is found in some of the classical uh, writers of Greek. But again, it speaks of this majestic, bright, and attractive light. But then it goes on to say, he is the exact representation of his being. And here's another Greek word that is never used in the Bible anywhere else. It's actually taken from one who is an engraver. And engraves in something an image, or like a stamp, that stamps the exact image. And this is the word that we talked a little bit about last week that talks about the two natures of Christ, the fact that he is God and man together in one person. Jesus is the exact representation of the essence of God's being. Now, you cannot be a ray of his glory and the exact representation of his image without participating in his essence. As it says in Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus did not think it robbery to call himself equal with God because he was in form God, in essence and nature God. In fact, when you go through Hebrews chapter 1, I think it's, well, I can't remember the verse, but God the Father says to God the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Clearly, that is addressed to Jehovah in the Old Testament and now addressed to Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus is God in the flesh. Don't let anyone come knocking at your door to give you a Greek lesson, usually from John chapter 1, that says that the word is a God. And they'll quote all kinds of Greek lessons. I, I, I love the story of one of these witnesses coming to the door of my Greek professor one day. 
And they knocked on the door and they said, you know, Jesus isn't God. And they quoted John chapter one. The Greek says this. He said, oh, that's interesting. He pulled out of the Greek New Testament and said, show me. They couldn't even find John. Because all they've been told is a theology that is not coming from the scriptures. And when you go to that particular translation, they might have changed it now, but when you go to that particular translation, they forgot to change the latter part of Hebrews that says the Father is praying to the Son, your throne, O God. They forgot that. Oh, there's too much in the scripture you'd have to change to eliminate the deity of Jesus Christ. So here it is. This is what we know about the Son. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. Again, we quote it from Colossians chapter 1. In him all things consist. The scientists in our day can go deep into examining what is. But they cannot come up with a reason for why things hold together. And the answer is Jesus. And when he speaks and let, lets the atoms fly. What happens when you divide an atom? The power that's unleashed with one atom? What happens when the word says, I'm done holding things together? It's done. But then get this. After he provided a purification for our sins. Now this is the heart of the book. That Jesus Christ... The Son of God, God in the flesh, came to this earth to communicate the ways of God and to die to purify sin, to cleanse sin. And we're going to see how the old covenant sacrifices were good in that day, but they were preparatory. And Jesus is the final word. He gave himself. That's chapter 2. He was made a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor, suffered death, tasting death for every person. And when he did that, he gave a purification for our sins. Man is ignorant and needs, God, needs the word of God. Mankind is guilty and needs the purification of the work of Christ. And that's what the book of Hebrews is all about. It's the central focus and theme. And then get this. He sat down, once he purified, made the atonement for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, which is now taken from Psalm 110, which will be quoted multiple times through um, this wonderful epistle called the Hebrews. And to sit down means that it's done. It's accomplished. When Jesus said, it is finished, he meant that atonement for sin has been made complete. And he sat down. We're going to see this again in chapter 1, verse 13. It's going to be in chapter 8. It's going to be in chapter 10. It's going to be in chapter 12. Our vision of Christ is to see him seated at the right hand of the throne of God, which speaks of might and power. So you've got Jesus the prophet 
who speaks the word of God. You have Jesus the priest who purifies our sin on behalf of the people of God. And you have Jesus the king seated with all authority at the right hand of the throne of God. Prophet, priest, and king. Therefore, verse 4. And there'll be a lot of therefores in this book. Now that you've got that, therefore, Jesus is superior to everything else. First of all, he talks about the angels, and then he's going to talk about Moses, and then he's going to talk about Joshua, and then he's going to talk about the purification system in the Old Covenant. And Jesus is superior to all of these things. Sometimes the word is better. Comparative term, better than. Better than, greater than, superior to. Jesus is much superior, just as the name he has inherited is, is superior to theirs. He's superior in nature and person, and he is superior in placement at the right hand of the throne of God. Therefore, consider Jesus. I mean, if this stuff grabs you, your life will be different. What did Scott say a moment ago? When I saw it, everything was different. How do you see it? With the eyes of faith. How do you see it? In the word of God. I would encourage you, if you have never seen the glory of Christ, to read like the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of John with faith and ask God to open your eyes. Ken Hughes tells the story of Igmar Bergman, a celebrated Swedish filmmaker, who one day was listening to some beautiful classic music and kind of went into a bit of a trance or a vision, he said. He saw an ancient cathedral and he watched himself walking through the cathedral until he came to a picture, a wonderful painting of Christ, which you often find in these ancient cathedrals. And he stood before the painting, realizing it was so important and he heard himself saying speak to me please speak to me and of course the picture was silent and that was the same year that Igmar Bergman produced his film The Silence a film about characters who despair of ever finding God <laughs> but it's not the painting that speaks it's the word that speaks and if you come to this book and say Lord speak to me please and read it with an open heart he'll speak because that's why he sent the son he'll open up to your troubled heart an image of Jesus Christ and if there's anything that Christians need today in this troubled world it's a true picture of Christ. Will you read through the book of Hebrews and say, Lord, show me? I love that verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Actually, it is, um, I have it on the screen here from uh, the King James translation, the way I memorized it. But we all with open face are beholding as in a glass or in a mirror the glory, the glory of the Lord, the image of Jesus Christ. And we are being changed 
by looking at that image into the image with ever-increasing glory by the Spirit of God. Now, as you think about that verse, I came across an amazing story by James A. Stewart. Not Jimmy Stewart, the actor, but an old theologian. Scottish descent. And he said one day he was in a very remote location. And it was the Lord's Day Sunday, and he wanted to go to church somewhere, but could find... No service except one that was being held by a small outpost of the Salvation Army. And the main teacher was not even there. So an illiterate farmer stood up to give the message to only a few people. And here is the well-educated, wonderful evangelist, author, preacher. And he was there listening. He said the message was not eloquent. But his text was 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into that same image. And he said perhaps because the preacher didn't have a whole lot of content to give that day, he kept repeating the text over and over and over again. And it was his recitation of the text of those simple words, beholding him, we are changed. Beholding him, we are changed. Those words etched indelibly on his heart and mind. And he never forgot that message. And he said, well, although, although the preacher was not educated or trained to be a preacher, the radiance from his face and the joy in his countenance spoke that he had seen the risen Christ. And then he quoted this phrase that's been one of my favorite quotations for a long time, but I realize I've been quoting it a little inaccurately. It's from Robert Murray McShane, another preacher from Scotland, and he said this, a glance of faith may save, but it's the gaze of faith that sanctifies. Some of us have looked to Christ and we live, right? We've looked with the eyes of faith. We've believed on Christ. But sometimes that's as far as we go. We watch the game through a 13-inch black and white TV and we're not there. But the book of Hebrews adds the color and the sounds and the beauty of the person of Christ. And instead of just a quick glance, may God give us the gaze of faith until Christ transfix transfix our hearts and transforms our lives. Let's pray. I know I shall see in his beauty the king in whose law I delight who lovingly guardeth my footsteps and giveth me songs in the night. O Lord, open our eyes that we might behold the Lord Jesus. May we turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face so that the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. 
If you've never trusted Christ, I pray look to him. Read the Bible, the Gospel of John, the Gospel of Mark. And pray that prayer, Lord, please speak to me. But as believers, we need to go deeper. And Hebrews is a great way to do it. The book of Hebrews. Lord, open our eyes that we might behold Jesus like we've never seen him before. Take a moment just to pray to the Lord with a request that God might fill your heart with himself. In Jesus' name, amen.